Welcome to the Medici Podcast, Episode 15, Preemptive Strike. wanted to say before we get started, thank you for listening. I can't say I haven't daydreamed about this podcast blowing up in a good way. Anyone who says they don't have the same hopes for something they've made, whether it's about a podcast or a novel they published or whatever, is probably lying, by the way. Anyway, I've been pleasantly surprised that I've started getting a listenership in the hundreds, approaching over a thousand with every episode. So, thank you for that. And after a delay, I finally got this podcast on iTunes, which has been providing the largest percentage of new listeners. So, if you have the inclination, uh, be sure to leave a rating or a comment. Also, I have put up a YouTube channel called, of course, the Medici Podcast, which includes images with the audio from the episodes. I just have the first two episodes up, but hopefully we'll catch up eventually. And as always, check out Medicipodcast.com for maps, images, and more. Since it's been a while since we were on the main narrative, let me do a bit of a previously on segment. Giovanni De Bici has, largely because of his connections to one of several rival popes, become a wealthy banker. Although drawn into politics by just the mere fact of his wealth and his family's reputation as supporters of the populist cause, Giovanni largely stayed out of politics. So much so, in fact, that no one was sure if he sided with the conservative or the populist cause. As a result, Giovanni had a great deal of political capital when he intervened to stop the conservatives, at the time led by Rinaldo Degli Albizzi, from disenfranchising members of the minor guilds and replacing them with nobles and members of the major guilds. Also, Giovanni decisively supported a major tax reform that replaced the city's sales and poll taxes with the Catasto, a system in which the property and revenues of the city's citizens were surveyed and taxed based on their individual wealth and income. His growing prestige netted Giovanni a marriage with a Florentine noblewoman, Picardi Bueri. Their first children were twins, Cosimo and Damiano, born on April 10th, 1389. If the name Cosimo brings to mind a certain lanky doofus, you're not alone. Cosmo! 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 Cosmo. <laughs> 
Oh, what's so funny? What? <laughs> Out of the bag. <laughs> Damiano and Cosimo were named after two saints of the same names, who were also twin brothers. According to legend, the saints were doctors who treated patients without charge and were both tortured and killed during the anti-Christian persecutions of the Roman Emperor Diocletian. Apparently the fact that the boys were twins and the connection between the named Medici and saints who were doctors was irresistible. Cosimo himself appreciated the connection all through his life. Even though his twin Damiano died shortly after birth, Cosimo made the day he was named, which also happened to be the church's feast day for Cosimo and Damiano, and not the day he was actually born, his official birthday. Picardo and Giovanni had another son, Lorenzo, born sometime in 1395. It would be the descendants of this Lorenzo, many years down the line, who would be a thorn in the side of Cosimo's own descendants. But during their lifetimes, the brothers seemed to have been close, and partners in both banking and politics. Almost nothing is known about Cosimo's childhood and early adulthood except that he and Lorenzo started working in the family bank early on and stayed completely out of politics. We don't even have a clear image of what Cosimo looked like in his youth, since the only portraits of him that survived were painted in his old age. What we can say is that, like any member of a great Florentine family, his career started when his parents arranged his marriage to a suitably prestigious bride. Sometime around 1415, Cosimo married Contessina de Bardi, the daughter of one of the city's most famous banking dynasties. In fact, if you've been following along, you might remember it was the Bardi and their risky loans to King Edward III of England that helped cause the recession that brought Walter Brienne to power. Well, as is usually the case, the Bardi did not suffer the brunt of their mistakes. Although they were no longer as wealthy as they had been about a century ago, they were still valuable allies for new power players like the Medici. While we may not know much about his early years, we do know more about Cosimo's personality and private life than his father or indeed any previous member of his family. Drawing from his sources, the 16th century Florentine historian Scipione Amarato described Cosimo as being of medium height and olive complexion. A modern historian, Mary Hollingsworth, describes him as, quote, a devoted family man, fond of Contessina and their children, even tolerant of the way his wife fussed over him during his frequent attacks of gout, but also a shrewd banker and a devious politician who could be ruthless when necessary. Devious as he definitely was, even people who would later criticize Cosimo's regime over Florence praised his virtues. Despite being a venomous critic of the Medici regime later on, 
the chronicler Giovanni Cavalcante, greatly admired Cosimo himself, writing, quote, If I believed the virtues in men were immutable and perpetual in this transitory and momentary life of ours, I would have dared to say that he was a divine man rather than mortal. Cosimo certainly remembered his father's advice about staying humble while never diluting the dignity of the family. He dressed in public like any other member of the major guilds, or wore the red robes of a physician, a fashion pun on the name Medici. As we will see, though, Cosimo could be more ruthless than even his worst enemies, if the situation allowed for it. But Cosimo's intelligence is the one thing that goes without question. Under his careful management, the Medici Bank could boast branches in Venice, Rome, Ancona, Geneva, Bruges, Avignon, and London. The bank was bringing in yearly profits of 12,000 florins. Some purported sayings of his that have come down do reveal something of a practical calculating mentality, such as, for example, a gentleman can be made with two yards of red cloth, and better a city ruined than lost. Although he was wealthy, Cosimo was naturally generous, or at least he understood that the best way to diffuse resentment was to share. Machiavelli hailed Cosimo as, quote, liberal and humane. Every birthday, Cosimo hosted parties, which included not only a banquet for family and friends, but he also invited servants and bank employees. Cosimo, though, wasn't a scholar a creator of art or literature himself. But like I mentioned last time, he was an obsessive book collector. It's important to clarify he actually read the books he collected too. We can tell because he liked marking passages of interest with three dots arranged in a fancy triangle. In particular, he had a deep and sincere interest in philosophy especially Neoplatonism. And like his father, he made sure he was involved with patronage. We'll talk more about that later, but Cosimo did sit on the board that eventually decided to use Filippo Brunelleschi's plan to erect a dome on the Florence Cathedral. While his father owned only a few books, including a Bible and devotional texts, Cosimo had a massive library at least according to Cosimo's friend and biographer, Vespasiano da Bastici, Cosimo could remember the titles and authors of every single one of his books. He even remembered the name of the previous owner of at least one of his books. Also according to Vespasiano, he was something of an expert in agriculture. Of agriculture, he had the most intimate knowledge, and he would discourse thereupon as if he had never followed any other calling. At San Marco de Garden, which was the most beautiful one, was laid out after his instructions. He did much fruit planting and grafting, and wonderful as it may seem, he knew about every graft that was made on his estates. Moreover, when the peasants came into Florence, he would ask them about the fruit trees and where they were planted. He loved to do grafting and lopping with his own hand, 
One day I had some talk with him when, being then a young man, he had gone from Florence, where there was sickness, to Kreji. It was in February, when they pruned the vines, and I found them engaged in two most excellent tasks. One was to prune the vines every morning for two hours as soon as he rose. Cosimo's other employment, when he had done with pruning, was to read the Moralia of St. Gregory, an excellent work in 35 books, which task occupied him for six months. Cosimo was also a dedicated family man. He and Contesina had two sons, Piero and Giovanni, and both parents doted over them, judging from the family letters that survived to this day. Contesina herself seems to have been a very conscientious parent, to put it nicely. One modern biographer, Cosimo, described her as the quintessential housewife. Anyone with a gently nagging mother who keeps at them even when they become an adult could probably relate to this letter that Contesina wrote to Piero at the age of 22 while he was staying with his uncle Lorenzo in Orange Genevra on the Medici estate in the Magello. I am sure that you are all very busy there, especially Geneva, so make sure you help her in any way you can. And keep your own things tidy, and don't leave one thing here and another there. And tell my other son to do the same. It would be well that both of you should order a pair of shoes from P. You have a pair of hose with the shoes, but he has not. Tell the bearer who it was that sent you those new shoes which do not fit, and he will inform Francesco Mortelli, who ordered them for you. Unfortunately, while Cosimo's father was faithful to his mother, at least as far as we know, the same isn't true for Cosimo. He had an illegitimate child, Carlo, whose mother was a slave named Madalena. Slavery was practically non-existent or outright illegal in most of Northern Europe, but it still existed around the Mediterranean, with Venice as a major importer of slaves from Eastern Europe in the, in the Caucasus region. But slavery in Europe itself at this time was much more rare than it had been in antiquity. And in Italy, slaves were usually used as domestic servants by the rich, very much unlike the African chattel slaves who would soon be used for plantation labor in the Americas. Because the enslavement of Christians by Christians was still strictly forbidden, Madalena may have been a Muslim. We also know she came from Circassia, a country just northeast of the Black Sea and bordering the modern-day nation of Georgia. Circassian women were prized in the slave trade because they were thought to be exceptionally beautiful with their pale skin and dark eyes. But we don't have an actual image of her, nor do we have any idea what became of her. Carlo was raised alongside Cosimo's legitimate sons. We don't know Contesina's feelings about this, but this was a common enough family arrangement in elite society. But as any Shakespeare fan knows, there was still a very strong stigma attached to illegitimacy, and it was probably because of the whole stereotype of the illegitimate son who threatens their legitimate brothers 
that Cosimo forced Carlo into a church career. Carlo did indeed spend his life in the background, whether by choice or, well, not by choice, eventually becoming an abbot and dedicating himself to collecting medallions. At the time of his father's death, Cosimo was already 45. Although he had quietly stayed out of politics, he was well on his way to becoming the richest man in Florence by a considerable margin. And such wealth meant that, whether he liked it or not, either he was going to get involved in politics or politics were going to get involved with him. This is a good point to explain how much money mattered in Florentine politics, and of course it mattered a lot, and how the conservatives managed their stranglehold on the government for so long. Certainly they first came to power as a backlash against the revolt of the Charpi, but that was a long time ago. After all, no one from Cosimo's generation, the generation coming into political power if not there already, would have been alive for or remembered the revolt in Salvestro de Medici's brief populist dictatorship. How did the conservatives cling to power in a system that chose its leader by lots? Oh, there are ways. There are always ways. For instance, there's money, specifically something called patronage. Patrons and their clients had been a regular part of the politics of Italian city-states since the days people still chatted in Latin. A patron would pay off the debts or arrange a job or a marriage or whatever for a less well-off man who would then become the patron's client. In exchange for the patron's support and favors, the client would do their patron any favors in return. If this sounds like a certain famous scene from a certain famous movie, well... We've known each other many years, but this is the first time you ever came to the council for help. I can't remember the last time that you invited me to your house for a cup of coffee. Even though my wife is godmother to your only child. But let's be frank, you yeah. You never wanted my friendship. And, uh, you were afraid to be my dad. Don't feel bad. We won't be the first person to draw a comparison between the Mafia and the politics of ancient Rome or Renaissance Italy, nor will we be the last. Anyway, in terms of Florentine politics, clients would repay their patrons with political favors. Want to get a law passed or your brother-in-law and the senora? If you got enough clients holding the right levers, no problem. Well, that was the oldest and most trusty weapon in the conservatives' arsenal. It wasn't the only one. There were also the balia, which were committees with broad legal and judicial powers appointed by the government in order to create some continuity and stability in a republic where the terms of most offices expired in just a couple of months. Originally, balias were just used to handle extraordinary situations like financial crises or wars. 
But the conservatives found them useful in making sure that even after they became a minority in government, they still had power in the ways that actually mattered. But in case these more subtle methods didn't work, the conservatives also handed themselves a sledgehammer. In 1393, when Meso Dei Albizzi was still alive and the de facto leader of the conservatives, he alleged that there was a populist conspiracy to topple the government. Modern historians doubt there was anything to the conspiracy besides perfectly legal opposition to the regime, but of course that hardly mattered. The suspicion of conspiracy and treason was enough to justify Meso banishing his leading rivals, including many members of the prominent Alberti family. To legitimize this mass banishment, Meso's government voted itself to power to disenfranchise or create new citizens. They used that power to bar the new rising families who tended to back populists from political offices. With the stroke of a pen, the conservatives gave themselves the power to shape the entire political class for at least the next generation. If that wasn't enough, circumstances around the turn of the century also changed in the conservatives' favor. The wars with Milan had economically exhausted Florence, but it also saw the powers that be score a historic victory. In 1406, Florence finally conquered and occupied their old rival, Pisa. Meanwhile, at home, the whole social landscape was changing slowly, but inevitably. Between the top families getting richer, as Florence became the dominant power of Tuscany, and the conservatives' reforms kept the rising new middle class from achieving any real political careers, patronage mattered more than ever. And as patronage became more important for any ambitious member of the middle class to rise, the guilds just mattered less and less. Once upon a time, guilds controlled the ladder of Florentine society, but now the only reliable way to reach the ladder was through rich dynasties like the Bardi, the Albizzi, and, of course, the Medici. At the top of the heap by Cosimo's time was Rinaldo. The modern historian Christopher Hibbert succinctly described Rinaldo degli Albizzi as, quote, a haughty, proud, impulsive man, reactionary and priggish. In private with his family and supporters, Cosimo dismissively called Rinaldo, quote, the knight, in reference to a knighthood the government granted him, and which he never stopped showing off. Rinaldo was not so arrogant, though, that he didn't recognize a threat when he saw one. Not long after Giovanni de Bici died and Cosimo took his place as head of the Medici family, Rinaldo started testing the waters for a preemptive strike. After all, Giovanni de Bici's last couple of political acts had once again excited populist hopes over Medici leadership, and Cosimo's wealth and banking collections alone put him in charge of the most formidable network of clients Florence had ever seen. But in the meantime, Rinaldo's first priority was to shore up his regime. And nothing shores up a regime like a successful war. 
The last obstacle to Florence's total domination of Tuscany was the city of Lucca, which also happened to be wealthy through the silk trade. During the wars with Milan, it had been Florence's ally. But the Signore of Lucca suddenly switched sides and set up an alliance with Milan, giving Ronaldo the perfect pretext to declare war. The invasion started off with an outburst of patriotic support. However, the war proved far more taxing than Ronaldo and his advisors expected, and the Florentine government became so reliant on loans from Cosimo de' Medici that even Cosimo's great wealth was strained. Essentially, Cosimo and the Medici Bank were bankrolling most of the war effort. You almost can't blame Ronaldo for seizing the initiative. At least, you couldn't blame him if we didn't have history's hindsight. As for the war, it started going so badly that they seriously considered commissioning Filippo Brunelleschi to try to flood the city. A battle fought on December 2nd, 1430, saw Florence suffer a catastrophic defeat against a Milanese force sent to relieve Lucca. One observer in Florence remarked, quote, It is no longer a matter of obtaining Lucca, but of preserving our own state. Discontent and fear were rife. Finally, a treaty was negotiated by April of 1433 with one of the conservative leaders, Paolo Strozzi, and Cosimo himself serving as diplomats. Only the intervention of Venice stopped Luca from demanding anything more than just a return to the status quo from before the war. Once Cosimo was done with the work of making peace, he knew he was vulnerable and that Ronaldo would target him. The Medici began transferring their money to safe places and selling their shares in the Monte. Cosimo also went on a strategic vacation to the Medici estate in the Mugello in the summer of 1433. However, he knew he had no choice but to comply when he was summoned back to Florence on September 1st, 1433. And as soon as he arrived in the city, he was detained and put on trial. The prosecutor was Niccolo Tinucci, a former supporter of the Medici who had defected to the conservative cause. Cosimo and his supporters were accused of illegally influencing political appointments, bribing officials, and most serious of all, plotting a violent coup and using their political influence to prolong the war against Luca so Cosimo could make more of a profit on his loans to the government. The accusations about political appointments and bribing officials were certainly true, but at the same time they were true about almost everybody. The charges about a coup in extending the war were actually almost certainly not true, especially because the exact same accusation of trying to profit from the war and stretch it out was levied against Ronaldo. There was plenty of resistance to the inevitable verdict. One of the people on the committee trying Cosimo despite being a client of Ronaldo, claimed he was sick so he could get out of voting and not have to share responsibility. 
In any case, though, the committee voted for Cosimo's banishment, along with the banishment of his brother Lorenzo and his cousin and key supporter Averago, as well as the disenfranchisement of the entire Medici clan, except for the descendants of Vieri de Medici, who had remained loyal to Rinaldo. Upon hearing the verdict, Cosimo gave a mournful speech, including the line, If I thought that this my misfortune and terrible ruin might serve to bring peace to this blessed people, not only would exile be acceptable, but I should even welcome death if I were sure that my descendants, O Signori, might pride themselves on my having been the cause of the wished-for union of your republic. Rinaldo wanted to just have Cosimo killed, but he dared not. However, he did get away with keeping Cosimo in prison for nearly a month, even after his brother and cousin were already exiled. Cosimo's cell was small, his accommodation sparse, and he was so afraid of poison he bribed the guards to allow him to receive all his meals from home. However, to an extent, Cosimo's imprisonment backfired on Ronaldo. To quote Cosimo's own words about the experience, I was detained till October 3rd for two reasons. One, they wished to insist in the Balia that the government should be carried on according to their ideas, or else they would kill me. And this decided my friends and relatives in the Balia to yield. Two, they thought that if, while in prison, I could not attend to my affairs, I should go bankrupt. But in this they failed, for our credit suffered nowhere. On the contrary, money was offered to me by several foreign merchants and lords, and a large sum was sent to Venice. They soon realized that their plan to drive us bankrupt had failed. Of course, Cosimo was definitely not an unbiased observer, but modern historians have verified most of what he wrote about his imprisonment. Cosimo was sent into his exile, and as he left, he cheerfully waved to his guards. Although he didn't get his wish to see Cosimo dead, Rinaldo must have thought he had handled Cosimo as well as his father dealt with the Alberti. It wouldn't be long, though, before Rinaldo would have reason to regret the steps he took. In fact, according to Machiavelli, he would one day remark, one should either not lift a finger against the mighty, or, if one does, do it thoroughly. Or, to put it another way, You come at the king, you best not miss. <laughs>